Welcome back to the Monroe Live podcast, everyone. Today we have Misco Electric. Thank you for coming on board Thanks today. for having me. So we've interfaced a lot over the past three to four years. Uh, we've met at many shows. You've been here at our facility probably three or four times now. Mm-hmm. And uh, let our listeners know a little bit more about how you got started in this industry, your background in the automotive industry, and anything else. Yeah, so... I do have a brand called Misco Electric, and a lot of people will know me from that. But actually, I've been working in the automotive industry for over a decade now. And primarily, I started in um, automotive experiential campaigns where I'd go out to events with car companies when they're doing a product launch. And in that case, they need people on the ground to educate consumers about the new product, what the new features are in it, what's the advantage of having this car versus anything else that's on the market. And from there, it kind of moved into not only marketing campaigns, but also um, training programs because there was a high need for that. And as I started working throughout the industry, I saw very clearly that there needed to be a lot more education in the electric vehicle space. And so over the years, I have specialized in and doing nearly exclusively all EV campaigns. Now I work for a lot of different brands. So I could, you know, I started off my career working under um, Ford's luxury brand, Lincoln, and I worked with them for probably about seven years or so. Um, And I was a narrator for the auto show circuit. So I'd get up on the stage and educate people about the new product we're launching. And then at those shows, people would ask a lot of questions. You worked the auto shows like I that? I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, for a long time. Wow. And That's then cool. um, from there, I started working those campaigns where I'd take these cars around the country, drive them all across the country to these different events, and introduce them in a new way. So not just people coming into a dealership or an auto mall to figure out what kind of car they want, but introducing it in a way that's like, integrating their lifestyle. So going to restaurants or, uh, you know, big festivals, things like that, and getting them in the car and getting butts in seats is a, is a big deal because then it really turns the corner for people to realize, oh, well, you know, now I can feel how this drives, what kind of features, what do the features do and demonstrate how this could really fit into their lifestyle. And then from there, started doing training programs, like I mentioned. And, um, by the time Actually, I was on the BMW i3 program, and that kind of was the light bulb for me to say, oh, well, this electric thing is very intriguing, and why not uh, learn a little bit more about this and figure out if this is a path that I want to pursue to specialize in, because it seems like no one's really talking about this. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, ever since then, uh, about 2014 or so, I have been transitioning to being only EV. Now, like I said, I work for a lot of brands. So I started with Lincoln, but then I work for BMW. I've done Volvo, Polestar. Um, Actually, Polestar was my last campaign that I worked on before the pandemic. Um, I was working at CES and that was, I think, probably when everything started to really ramp up. And um, yeah, at that point, I was like, well, I can't do my job when everything got shut down. So what am I going to do? And decided to create the Misco Electric brand because I was like, I can still do my job kind of by educating people online. And my background, actually, I was in, I did sports reporting before. That's what I went to school for. So I was used to editing and doing on on camera work. 
So why not try to go down this path and create a brand? Because there's not a lot of women talking about EVs. And so why not be the voice for that and try to make it a little bit more user-friendly and also provide a different perspective since I work in the business. Yeah, yeah. And then your education efforts getting people to go electric go beyond just the vehicle. So there's grid issues, there's uh, charging questions, and you have to try and address all those with people because switching from a gas internal combustion engine vehicle to an electric vehicle is, is more than just the vehicle. So can you explain some of the trials and tribulations there and how you educate people in, on those fronts? Yeah, because even the people that do my job, even if they're on an EV program with me, um, most, if not like never, <laughs> none of them own an EV. So that's also a different layer yeah. to it is if you're an EV owner, you know, all the things that are required in order to convert to go electric. And once you get into that lifestyle, you know, there's a lot of advantages, of course. And for some people, it's not necessarily the right fit for them yet. But generally speaking, I think a lot of people don't realize that it fits their lifestyle because the daily average commute is somewhere between 30 and 40 miles a day for the, the national yeah. average. And um, when you plug in at night, you should have enough for whatever commute you have for the next day. And so uh, talking about, about it in a holistic fashion um, is definitely part of it because you're not just buying a car that you can just easily transition to necessarily. There is a little bit of a learning curve and there are a lot of questions that people just don't understand because a lot of times they just don't understand uh, electricity because they just hire someone to do whatever, yeah. which that makes sense. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, there's a lot to communicate to whether it's consumers or in my case, more recently, um, dealers and dealer staff or OEM employees on the fundamentals of the expectations for charging on a day-to-day -day basis yeah. or what public charging looks like. A lot of people don't realize you can't, you could just go across the country right now in any electric car. And although there might be some hardship, depending on what network you choose to yeah. plug into, uh, it is completely doable. I've done it, <laughs> you know, several times, actually, I'm very, I'm an outlier in that case. Cause I pretty much only do road trips in my EV. And so a lot of people, when I'm going into these dealerships and, and, sharing my experience, but also trying to educate them on the new product that I'm, you know, have in front of me, they, um, they have so many EV myths that they're perpetuating. And I think that's one of the biggest challenge challenges that we face when we're educating, you know, dealers and OEM employees is that they regurgitate those myths and they haven't done their own research to find the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some chart on Twitter where it showed the reasons why people are hesitant about going to EVs. And the top one was cost. The second one was, I don't remember, but the third one stuck out to me. And it was that they prefer a gas engine. And I sat there and I thought, that's like having a horse-drawn buggy and saying, I prefer to scoop manure. Like, <laughs> what do you mean you prefer a gas engine? The service, the you know, oh my gosh, so much maintenance and oil and smell. And I don't drive an EV yet. It's kind of sacrilegious working at Monroe. Disc, disc. But I actually, with the price drop in Teslas, I went and priced out a Model X in the new red color. And it's like a hundred grand. It used to be like 120. But I could see myself doing all my daily commuting and dropping off 
or at least my wife. My wife has a minivan that's like 50 grand. It's like twice as expensive, and she hates taking it to the dealer. She's taken it to the dealer to try to get an update on the software, and each time it's taken like two, two and a half hours, and she had to cancel it each time because she had to like leave. So just the time my wife has wasted trying to get her minivan updated and the oil change and had a recall and all this stuff, She's only had it for 15 or 20,000 miles, and it's driving her crazy. And I could just picture her. I'm like, well, if she had a, a nice red Model X with the gold wing doors or similar to sliding doors. Accommodate the kiddos. Yep, because i got a lot of kids, three kids and a dog. It's not quite as big as the minivan. So I'm, I'm really waiting for the advent of the massive EV. Like EV9? What do you think of that? It's not quite big enough. Really? Yeah, I had a Rivian R1S. Uh, that I took home and used for a week, put my car seats in it, too small. And I think the EV9 is slightly bigger than the R1S. You may know better than me. Yeah, I sat in the back seat. It is, I mean, it, it would be perfect for kids, but um, it is a little bit tight. Back. I, I'm 5'11", so <laughs> I'm very tall. So yeah. um, for me, and I have really long legs, so that's what was challenging is sitting in that third row is it is a little tight back there for, for my body yeah. type, but... You know, I think it would probably be decent for kids. But then, you know, a lot of times you have to have all the cargo space, too. And yeah. in the case of, you know, a lot of SUVs, some people will put stuff on the roof racks or, you know, tow hitch receiver, but you're adding drag. So, therefore, you're going to have a hit in range. So, yeah. you know, depends on if that fits your lifestyle of you might have to stop and charge for a little bit longer. Yeah. And, and I currently drive a Yukon XL, which is like one of the biggest vehicles that's not a nine-passenger van. You know, you have to get like some massive thing and uh i have it it's the i can take all my kids and my wife to costco and have two shopping carts filled with stuff because that fits in the back that's the thing is is like it works great for passengers but then you go passengers and a costco run for a family or yep. passengers and a road trip then you're right when i had an old yukon the shorter one and i have a i have a hitch thing it's like a hitch carrier mm-hmm. and i put stuff on the roof so when i took a road trip with with you know three kids my wife and i i had all this external stuff for luggage and a cooler and it was kind of crazy so i think my expectations are really high for volume and size and i know tesla's launching the cyber truck but i really want a cyber suv just make it an suv on that frame it can look all crazy and futuristic i'd buy that that is a interesting prospect. Yeah, I would say, you know, since I do road trips a lot, I have a Model Y and um, typically I put my e-bikes on the back. So I do e-bike reviews as well. And I I am road tripping to go to new places because I also, you know, in my off time, I like to explore nature. I love hiking, backpacking, anything like that to be outdoors. And so I'm always bringing my e-bikes on the back of the car. And usually I see about like a 20% range hit. And a lot of people don't realize it's not necessarily all the weight that you're adding onto. It's really the profile of the drag you're creating and the aerodynamics um, that really suffers And that's on the back. Yeah. That's crazy. That's why I'm kind of excited about things like the light ship, you know, new things that especially the F-150 Lightning, you know, towing, it sees a pretty significant difference because of the huge thing that you're bringing behind you that's not optimized for aerodynamics. And yeah, yeah. so I love seeing that kind of stuff because also that's the lifestyle that I live. So kind of selfish as well. And and you have a Model Y long range, all-wheel drive? Yep. 
Nice. Yeah. And for my job, it's like a lot of people ask me, oh, well, what do you drive? What would you buy in, on all this? Or, or when I'm on the program of the product that I'm launching, they're like, would you buy this? And there's like, well, there's a lot of factors to consider when you're buying a car. And for me, since I live the lifestyle of wanting to go outdoors and go remote places, um, you know, I actually was shopping for a Hyundai Ionic 5. I loved the idea of that car. But at the time when I was trying to get it, they were all, all the dealers for one, they don't sell it in every state, so I couldn't get it in Michigan. But all the dealers that were selling it at that time were like 10K markup, oh, you know, man. here and there. And I was like, you know, being in the business, I, I would just like refuse. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, if they're going to charge a 10K markup and that car is, you know, this price, but then the Model Y is cheaper at this price and I get more range and I get the reliable charging network, then that's probably the yeah. path that I'll go. But in the meantime, I'm, I have that car because I'm waiting for my R1T. I've yeah. had an order in on the Max Pack R1T for a really long time. Um, so. Oh, they haven't shipped the Max Pack yet? Not yet. Oh, man. Yeah. The, the configuration that I had has been slowly Delay, they keep de- delaying and also like they're pulling stuff out of it because they're trying not to probably lose so much money on each one of these cars because it's like a 20k difference if i was to order the car now as as is and now they won't even let us get the um quad motors in it they're pushing it down to the dual motor setup so oh. i mean i'm fine with that though because yeah. i like range that's my thing is it like range is important to you, me because i'm you, going to those that'll remote, help range yeah remote areas i'm really I'm like, okay, that's fine. I don't need the quad. I'll take the dual because that'll probably yeah. help me a little bit and more on. Knowing that, that we have an R1T here that we tore down, did a cost analysis, that is the most features and vehicle per unit dollar. It is loaded with the pass-through, with how the the frunk, the, the bed, the storage, the materials. It's just an amazing vehicle. You get a lot for your money, but the more you get, the more it weighs, the more it impacts range. And if you wanted a range-conscious EV, they could cut out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds from that vehicle, go into the dual motor, lightweighting it, and you could probably get 15 to 20% more range if you just had like a more of a low-feature version of the R1T. Yeah, and I'm hoping I'm really hoping that these uh, enduro motors are going to be, um, you know, efficient. And this is this is one of my big gripes that I, a lot of people that are in this kind yeah. of like EV influencer or EV content creator world, um, I, I have this conversation all the time. Is that, you know, I don't like the fact that it's a really big battery pack. I want brands to be efficient, and that's really going to be coming down the pipeline, hopefully in the next couple of years, because they're realizing we can't get away with putting 200 kilowatt hour battery packs in these things. Yeah. It's, it's, we need to focus on efficiency. My gosh. I say the same thing. When people ask me, they said, you know, how do you, how do you pick the best EV? And I said, the one with the best MPGE, because it's a reflection on their engineer's capability to make the best possible vehicle with the smallest possible battery. I said, yes. you should be celebrating an EV with a very long range and a very small battery. Yes. <laughs> because that means that it wasn't death by a thousand cuts. And if you look at the thermal system for Tesla's, they use one-third the amount of lines for the ethylene glycol, and they only have one bottle, not three. They have two pumps, not three or four. Um, it's a very e- efficient routing for all the hoses and stuff. So all of that reduces weight. It also reduces the amount of energy you need to heat the fluid because there's less fluid. When there's less fluid, you don't have to heat the whole line. You're heating a smaller amount, and it just 
it's a thousand tiny decisions means the MPGE is just going up a little bit, a little bit more, and the yeah. weight is dropping. When the weight drops, the suspension components get smaller. When those get smaller, the battery can be smaller because now the vehicle, it's just like a, it's like a whole total vehicle dynamic equation that if you continually refine it and refine it and refine it, you have a beautiful vehicle that's very efficient. Now you can get there by spending tons of money using exotic materials like all aluminum vehicle with magnesium and uh, like Lucid has a lot of crazy technology mm -hmm. in their stator and rotor and and tiny motor. Yeah, we have that. We actually just filmed this morning a video oh. on that. And but that's a halo car, so they have a great MPGE for for a price. So then if you do cost per MPGE, yes. that to me is like. The Model Y right now is such a good deal, especially if you make less than three hundred grand as a married couple or one hundred and fifty as a single person, because you can get a Model Y all-wheel drive, long range. I think was it forty-two grand? Yeah, well, plus the seventy-five hundred. Yep, because it's like forty-nine, I think, at this moment for the long range. But then you get the seventy-five hundred. Yeah, so forty-two. Yep. Yeah, that is. I create. Like, how do you? That's ridiculous. That's the average price of a vehicle. And you get a ton of value. Yeah. And and this is the thing that I keep saying is like, well, you know, maybe automakers aren't necessarily going to go this direction because why would they? Well, because of cost, like what you said, like if I can use less materials and at this stage, we know it's hard to get those raw materials in the supply chain to be able to produce a lot of batteries. We need a lot of batteries in order to get more volume out. But if you're prioritizing that and using less materials to make a smaller battery pack, you can kick out more volume of these cars. Correct. So it's, it is, uh, you know, a benefit for automakers to go this direction, but the problem is, is, as you know, they rely on suppliers. And are the suppliers prioritizing that? No, because they're just selling something off the shelf. And that is slowly getting to a point where they're making some upgrades to get to that point. But it is very slow. Yeah. And suppliers make margin on the dollars that they sell to yes. an OEM. So why, where's the motivation to shrink the amount of dollars that you're charging an OEM by creating some really crazy thermal system or an amazing efficient drive unit they, they they'll be designing to the specifications of the oem whatever they may be and then the knob that's always the easy knob to turn is just add more batteries so right. like if you look at the hummer what is it like 48 mpge it weighs like nine thousand pounds they just kept turning the knob in yes. the design like more batteries and then more batteries is more weight. More weight yep. means everything else gets heavier. Now you have this behemoth. You almost need a CDL to drive it. Right. It's like crazy. Yeah, and I'm sure on some roads in America, like you technically can't drive that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I'm with you. And, th and then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize, when I go into these dealerships, like just the fundamentals of like, okay, well, this car has this size battery pack, which is bigger than this size, but this car gets more range. Why is that? Well, look at the aerodynamic profile, the mm -hmm. coefficient of drag on this car versus that car. For one, look how the big significant difference of that. What kind of tires are they using? The, the size of the wheels. Change. Size of yeah. the wheels, yeah, because um, you need low rolling resistance, and it, that optimizes range. Um, so those little decisions that they're making on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah, there are some advantages for having an intuitive nature to a, a vehicle, and that people are going to decide 
based on that kind of information, whether that's important enough for them to buy that car. But ultimately, like in order to get mass adoption and more volume out there, we need to make smaller batteries and make them more efficient so that we can get longer range EVs. Because that's still one thing that people are very concerned about is that, you know, they think they need more range than they do. And I will say that there is, you know, some expectations that have to be aligned. Most people aren't driving an, an EV from zero to a hundred percent range on a day-to-day basis. They drive from maybe like 15% to 80% on a daily basis. So that's the chunk of range that they're, they need to be concerned about. So if it's a 300 range battery pack, you're not really driving the 300 miles. You have to stop before that to charge. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that fundamental, expectation that needs to be aligned with the actual real world experience you're going to get. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm, I'm big on efficiency. Yeah. So Elon Musk says 300 miles of range is enough. And a lot of his vehicles have slightly over that. The model S plaid, I think we had had close to 400 miles of range. Sandy and I took that on a road trip and that was like a luxury. When we left 400 miles of range, it's like, when are we going to charge? I don't know. Whenever, I guess, you know, we could stop here. We could stop here. It was great. When we had our Model 3, which was long range, all-wheel drive, it had like 320 miles of range or something. But you only ever saw like 280 or 290 on there for some reason because we were never really getting all the way charged. Mm -hmm. And that we had to be a little more cognizant because it was 2021. Now, I can't imagine how much better the charging infrastructure is now because Tesla's rolling out thousands of charging stations every quarter. I think they're they're well above all the other uh, uh, charging infrastructure providers combined. Yeah. So where do you see charging infrastructure in the next five years? And do you think that'll actually truly alleviate the need for the 300 miles of range? Because 300 was fine in 2021. Sandy and I did 48 charging sessions in our road trip. 8,000 miles in 11 days. So it was fine. So what do you, what's your thoughts there? You can go where pretty much anywhere that you want to go right now in an EV. Um, there are still some remote areas where you definitely need to plan it out a little bit better because they might not have DC fast charging in the area. This is I have a bone to pick with Vermont, by the way. <laughs> so the last four months I've been spell- spending a c- on contract working with Nissan on the Aria launch for their dealers. I'm taking an E-Force all-wheel drive Platinum Plus loaded out vehicle across the country to educate their uh, dealers. And I was in Vermont for a, a good chunk of time. And Vermont has a lot of incentives to get more EVs on the road and people can get some crazy deals there and so and they're really green friendly in a lot of ways but they have like very little dc fast charging and i'm like what oh wow i want to be able to go to the mountains and a lot of people do that that that's what they do is they go to the mountains they do um whether they want to do off-roading or if they want to do skiing or whatnot and that's not as doable at this stage in time if you own an EV in that state. So I I think there's going to be a significant change with with the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program that goes in in every single highway corridor. uh, Every 50 miles, there are going to be charging stations for people to have access to. Now, mind you, that installation process is starting this year. All the RFPs are still getting sorted out and everything like that. And so I think that is going to make a huge difference for EV adoption and people not having to have you know, more than 300 miles of range, but 
there are still people with my lifestyle that go to very remote places, like out to the parks or out into the mountains where, you know, and in the wintertime, I mean, we live in Michigan, so you have a little bit of hit on range there too. And it's not that you can't do it. It's just, it's a little bit more inconvenient because you have to stop and charge an extra time or two extra times, depending on where you're, obviously, if you're going across country, it's a little bit more than that, but you know, yeah. you have to take that into consideration. But I do think that the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program is going to make a big difference because of the uptime. That's what's crucial is because all these CCS standard compatible vehicles, um, you know, that's the big hurdle right now is charging infrastructure. Like people will buy a Tesla because they've really nailed the whole experience yeah. as far as going wherever you want to go and not having to even think about it because you just plug it into the navigation and it does all the work for you ahead of time. Yeah. I've had a hundred percent success rate plugging yep. in and my vehicle charging only one time that I have a kind of a derated charge and it's because I made a mistake. I accidentally put Nashville as the city into the destination instead of the charging. So I didn't precondition. Oh, okay. And yeah. I blamed Tesla at first, like when I was, I think I was with Eric and Sandy, and I'm like, I don't know why it's not charging fast. It took like an hour and a half instead of 40 minutes, 30 minutes. And then I didn't, I realized it afterwards that when we were driving, I was following the GPS and I went directly to the center of Nashville. I'm like downtown Nashville. It's like, you've arrived. And I'm like, this what is wrong. The then I really quickly put the next charging Super station and it started preconditioning, but only for like, 20 minutes so my fault so 100 percent success rate and the, all the time i only saw two charging stations that were inoperative because someone stole the cables someone like cut them off probably for scrap metal or yeah. something yeah only that's, twice that's really unfortunate yeah. uh, but i am excited for the that federal program to get those stations in because the uptime requirement is over 97 percent in mind you i mean that's still like 12 days out of the year that you're not going to have there's that leeway for them to not have operational charging stations, but you know, at least if you can force them to get closer to like what Tesla is like 99.95% yeah. reliability rating, like, and usually Tesla puts out like 12 stations or 20 stations yeah. or, or, you know, California, it's crazy. Um, but you know, most of the time when we're doing road trips in CCS cars, you see maybe two, four, you know, at most six stations. Yeah, and so how does your perception of how the public uses the charging? I mean, where's the mm -hmm. etiquette? Uh, do people charge and forget? I feel like the people with Tesla, they really are good about it, of, of, not, of not, like, you know, hogging the spot. They move really quickly. Um, but I've had some wild experiences with public charging at non-Tesla stations. What's your experience there? And do you think there'll be a point maybe in the next two or three years where – EV sales outpace infrastructure and you have these like meltdowns at charging stations? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of work in the background happening with level two charging and a lot of partnerships where we can get more of those types of stations that fit the dwell time of our activities yeah. on a weekly basis, like whether it's a grocery store or the gym, the gym, everything like that. So I think that is going to help a lot. Um, I mean, but we're getting there. So I think in the first couple of years or so, it is still going to be a problem. And ultimately it comes back to the education. And this is why I'm like very passionate about what I do and why I want to keep going into these dealerships, not only because dealerships have high turnover. So there's new people like yeah. every time you go into them that need to learn, but um, grasping the concept of 
aligning the expectations of what these people need to do on a daily basis for charging. You know, you don't, in, in these free charging programs that the automakers provide to their customers are a good bonus, I guess, but it does create some friction at the charging station because if there aren't a lot of charging stations and say I arrive with only like 5% and I'm making my road trip, I'm trying to get on my way. There's a lot of these, it's notorious like Volkswagen ID4 that's sitting in an Electrify America station trying to get to a hundred percent. It's like, you don't need to do that and you don't need to charge to that point. So like what, but also who am I to tell them that they can't, you know, it's like a weird fine line. So the, uh, the expectation of maybe you don't need to charge every, get comfortable with driving the vehicle with the amount of range that it has in order to fit your lifestyle and match your dwell time appropriately. But maybe necessarily you don't have to charge up to a hundred percent when you get to a DC fast charger and block the station for other people that really need it. Only one time did Sandy and I have to charge to a hundred percent we were in Kalmouth Falls, Oregon, and we needed to drive to Reno, Nevada, and it was 305 miles, and we need, literally yeah. needed to charge to 100%. Even after we did that, it immediately regulated us to 45 miles an hour. When I left that charging station, it says, you need to drive 45 miles an hour or you're, you're not, not going to make, make it. it. Yeah. And Sandy, and, and like it was already telling us that, and we had like four hours to go, and a storm was coming. And uh, luckily, there was nobody else at this. The whole time we charged, nobody else came and charged. So if it would have been full and somebody would have said, hey, you know, give us give us the charging station, I would have politely, like, said, no, we actually, we need this. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm excited that Tesla's actually, you know, with the magic dock. Yeah. I put out a video of that when it first launched, like, mostly in New York and California. But the fact that they're going to ha- open up 3,500 stations, um, is wonderful within yeah. the next couple of years. I think at the, by the end of 2024 um, is really great because they're so reliable and the process is very easy. Even if you have to download the app and you know swipe to start it, it is a very easy process. Yeah. So um, I'm excited for that prospect to, to kind of fill out a little bit more because they always said that they were going to do it and now it's finally coming yeah. to fruition because they have a little bit a bit more of a, an incentive to do that. <laughs> do you think they'll only open up the ones on major corridors for on the highway because there's some like in California. We were in Malibu and they're busy and I I would hate for you know, they're already busy and now you throw in the wrench of these fumbling bumbling non-Teslas in, backing in, pulling in, blocking spots because when the cord was short, like yep. a lot of vehicles don't fit right. Mm-hmm. So that would kind of degrade the user experience. So it'd be nice if I knew which ones were Tesla only and which ones weren't, if I'm a Tesla owner. Sure. Do you know the strategy there? Yeah, so um, it from what it looks like right now, I think Tesla's doing the right thing as far as rolling it out in an appropriate fashion that's not interfering too much with their owner base because what I've noticed is that most of the stations that they are opening up to being CCS compatible are underutilized stations by owners or they are uh, deserts for CCS. So they're in areas where there isn't a lot of CCS infrastructure already that um, can kind of supplement that uh, because part of the requirement is that they have to be a mile off of the highway corridor to have easy access off those highways. And so they're not going to do all of them, but I think where Tesla will really be able to get a lot of these um, RFPs is 
in the rural places because they do charging infrastructure so much cheaper than anybody. Like it's crazy the cost that they can put out these superchargers and in a very efficient manager by uh, management so that they can pretty much put it on a big concrete slab. And then once the permitting is all fixed and done, like drop it in, hook it up and you're good to go. So I think that especially in the rural communities, they are going to succeed because they can do it for so much cheaper. And that's, that's part of one of the things that the states are looking at is how cheap can you do it and how many stations, like what's the value proposition here? And if you have the best value, then we're probably going to go with you. Yeah. Sandy and I were on a shuttle bus in LA about two years ago. And this guy was sitting across from us and we're like, oh, you know, we started talking to him. Hey, what do you do? He's like, I install charging infrastructures, you know. And he said, oh, do you do Tesla? Do you electrify America? He's like, I do all of them. And he raved about how easy it was to install Teslas. And this is before the big precast thing. And he mentioned the number of tubes and conduit that run is like singular versus two or three. And he walked through it all. And we're like, wow. And I got his card. And we keep in contact with that guy. And cool. what's interesting about Tesla is, their culture at the top leads trickles all the way down to how they do their how they design their charging infrastructure and how they design their vehicles. They seem to be able to make a more elegant product that costs less that's actually more desirable. They focus on the usability and the the uh, customer experience in a way that kind of hooks people into their ecosystem. Yeah. Similar to how I have an Apple phone and I've had Apple products for the past decade. And I cannot imagine transitioning to Android. Oh, I'm and, a pixel girly. <laughs> and, and losing, you know, my uh, library. I have like 2.5 terabytes of videos wow. and photos yes. in my cloud, which is more than you can actually. No, the biggest plan is two terabytes for a, an individual. But if you get a family plan, um, for like 30 bucks a month and add two terabytes, you can get four. And you're, I have four. You're, you're the loophole guy. Yeah, you find I, all these. The, the, <laughs> if you actually, if you were listening to this and you, you'll, I hit the max and I'd literally pay for 10 terabytes because I keep everything. I'm not, yeah. I, and, and 95% of the videos and photos are of Sandy Monroe, you know, because <laughs> I use my phone da, 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 and um, That's all, cute. all the travel and stuff. But Anyways, I can't imagine breaking free of the ecosystem. It's less about the hardware and more about the user experience and the apps and how easy everything is. Particularly when I go from phone to phone, it's even easier every time. I just like, oh, I'm just going to scan this little thing. It's like, poop, your phone's here. Like, I did it. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. And then, uh, you know, two hours later, all my apps have downloaded and it's like, it's there. So I feel like Tesla's... You're going to get all your features and your seat settings and everything. And they've even rolled out where if they give you a loaner, your loaner will have all your settings and everything right. in it. The cloud-based profiles. Like, right. And like other automakers aren't doing this. And why? That's because mostly is that all of their profits come from internal combustion engine products yeah. and that whole supply chain. And when you sink a bunch of money into that, you need to have it make it valuable over a course of a period of time for it to make sense because your shareholders are going to get pissed otherwise. Um, And so to transition into EVs is so challenging for these guys because they have to dump billions of dollars into a whole new thing that they don't have a supply chain built up for. And that's, I think, you know, it's kind of good that the uh, federal infrastructure 
bill and also the EV tax credit went through because this really helps the automakers. Yeah. I mean, one por- portion of that, of course, is the $7,500 tax credit. But then the amount of money that they're making to produce batteries here yeah. is significant that a lot of people aren't really talking about. But if they produce a battery here in the United States, they can get anywhere from like $35 to $45 per kilowatt hour. And that's like going to help out those automakers to build things here so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, they need that because right now they, they rely on internal combustion engine infrastructure. Yeah, it is kind of crazy how some of these OEMs, they still have to hold on to the past in order to generate enough cash, profit to fund the future. It's like, but when do they actually rip the Band-Aid off? And, and there's usually a, there's a big overlap being planned by a lot of these OEMs, and it's really tough. And like Ford and GM and Stellantis, they've had all sorts of buyouts offered to their, you know, some of their long-term employees. It's got to be a a real, you know, wild time overseeing this. What's your thought on that? Extremely challenging. I mean, I give props to them. I mean, I think that's also why, you know, this this bill got put into place because guess who were the ones that were already building out factories for building batteries here that are already ahead, whereas it's going to still take a couple years for some of the others, the foreign automakers, to really get set into place to be able to collect on those subsidies. Yeah. But, um, I mean, Hey, we're in America, so that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, d- I definitely think it's a challenging time and I get it. And, and uh, you know, on one side of things, I'm like, yeah, I really want everyone to sell in all of their model lineup. Give me an EV version of every single platform yeah. that you offer, because you'll see that the take rate will be much higher. We'll have a higher margin, uh, market share, but at the same time, it's like they can only move so fast. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want them to go bankrupt. Yeah. And and Tesla is really only in a few segments right now. They make a small car, a medium-sized crossover SUV, CUV, really, the Model Y, a large CUV with the Model X, and a large sedan with the Model S. They're going to get into large trucks with the uh, uh, Cybertruck, but really that's not a body on frame. It's going to be a unibody. Mm-hmm. So there's so many other segments, small car, A, A, A class, B class, um, sports car with the Roadster. There's small pickup. There's like five or seven, five or six different sizes of SUVs. Look at Jeep. Jeep, you can buy like a, a Renegade, a Compass, a Cherokee, a Grand Cherokee, a Grand Cherokee L, a Wagoneer, and a Wagoneer L. Yeah. So <laughs> Jeep, and you can buy a Wrangler, which is like different. There's so many Jeeps and, uh, Tesla really isn't even in any of those markets. The Model Y and Model X don't compete against any of those. So um, my point is Tesla's really grabbing a ton of market share, and I think the Model Y is going to be the top-selling vehicle in the world this yeah. year. I believe so. Yep. I think it was top-selling vehicle in Europe and China yep. first quarter. I think it sits at, like, what, three right now maybe yeah. in, in the U.S., but it's going to overtake it pretty soon, which is – that's a – Big deal. Yeah. In the U.S., I think they have a lot of ground to make up because I think they sold a three or 400,000 Model Ys in the U.S., maybe 300. And the F-150 is like 650. Yeah. Yeah. So, but for globally, I think they're doing really well. So I guess my question is, as Tesla enters more market, do you think they continue to grow or flatten out by the time they hit 2030? Because their goal of 20 million by 2030 is like really, really ambitious. 
Well, it's interesting to me because they have a different um, philosophy philosophy because they are actually producing a lot of cars right now that people are driving, but yeah. their whole goal is to eventually get that the cars can drive themselves. Yeah. And therefore, we would rely on our cars to either subscribe to them or well, however that happens, however Tesla wants to do that to make the money that they want to make, yeah. to be able to have those go out and do things for people while they're at work and not using their car. Um, so it's interesting to me to see that transition. But to be fair, like Tesla's only making EVs. All these other guys have to have a supply chain that is compatible with the rest of their lineup to make sense of the economics. So like, for example, this car that I was recently launching, the infotainment screen is not optimized for an EV. That's because it goes in every single one of their products down the yeah. line. So although it's annoying to go through some buried menus to find the things that an EV driver would need on a day-to-day -day basis, or some of the, the screens aren't even in the car because, you know, yeah. this was optimized to go in those others. But Tesla can really focus on only doing EVs and making it so efficient because that's all they do. That's what they focus on. And um, so... You know, it's it's tough when you get to that sense of like if, if you can dedicate that and produce the volume and make it more efficient so that you're not you're 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 making the cost make sense for what you're producing, then yeah, I think Tesla could get there. Um, obviously, they probably need to open up a, a few more uh, gigafactories and yeah. things of that nature. But um, I, although a lot of things fall through when Elon says certain technology is coming this year or whatnot and but there's a lot of things that he has done. So, you know, although I take it with a grain of salt sometimes, it's like, you know, they are proving to a sense that they can do certain things. And so I do believe in them as a company to be able to get to most of their goals. I think it'll take a little longer. <laughs> yeah, and I find it interesting that the press doesn't latch on to some of Tesla's success. So think about this. There's a plant in Germany manufacturing model-wise at a really good clip, and it's the top-selling American vehicle. It's an American vehicle. It's the top-selling vehicle in Europe. Do you know how much the press would be celebrating that if it was a right. Chevy Equinox or a Ford whatever? Yeah. And it is like you will not see anything in the mainstream media celebrating that. I think it's wild I mean, like imagine if Ford or GM built a massive plant in Germany and you had this amazing culture. I was there. Sandy and I were just in Germany. The people there, they want to work there. It's the biggest employer in the Brandenburg, Berlin area, 10,000 employees. Like they're all like, and the, the, there's all these buses and trains bringing people in there and they're all working and they're all happy. So the culture, the positive culture even spans to other countries the pride of people wanting to work for Tesla versus other OEMs where they're typically wrapped around the axle of maybe union issues or, you know, uh, all sorts of other bureaucratic issues that you don't get that same, you know, reaction. Yeah. And I think innovation plays a big part in that because they are innovating. They are developing a lot on their own. So people that go to work for them feel like a sense of that, obviously mission that they tout, but the, the thing that you're creating something that no one's created before and you're innovating and, you know, there's, you know, I've worked for BMW a lot and I always thought that they were wonderful at innovating new features and um, yeah. technologies, but just devastated that, you know, after launching the i3 and 
a lot of their other products that they kind of let it slip away and didn't advance. Uh, but I do think there are companies like them that can grab a hold of the reins again and really provide competitive products to the market because to be fair, like, yes, there are a lot of early adopters and people that will get a Tesla for whatever reason, but there are so many people that don't like the experience that Tesla offers, whether that's, you know, interfacing with a human or being able to have a service center around every corner, like in all these little towns around the whole country, or um, just having regular door handles or being able to get into the car and having a setup where they don't have to have a big learning curve. They want to screen in front of them. There's just a lot of these elements that might be important to the buyer. And at this stage, it's becoming really crucial because it used to be most of these early adopters They came in and they know exactly what they're buying and they don't need to ask a lot of questions, but we're starting to appeal to a wider demographic at this stage with all the different form factors that there are out there and fitting a lot more people's lifestyles with the electric pickup trucks on the market and stuff like that. And we quite haven't hit where you are with your needs, but that's hopefully coming so that we can have more people be like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to consider this because it's going to fit my lifestyle. And some people just don't want that same experience that Tesla offers for whatever reason. And that's totally fine. But that means that there's room for the market to be able to provide that for them. And I I do think there are going to be some, probably there's going to be consolidation. Um, I feel like unless there's a huge technology breakthrough, which it seems somewhat promising, but the people that are dragging their heels, like a lot of the Japanese automakers, the Toyotas, the, you know, little ones that maybe can't invest necessarily in dumping huge billions of months of dollars for transitioning to EVs. They're going to get bought out by someone. There's going to be some type of consolidation for them to be able to get into it essentially. Yeah. So that's a really good point you make consolidation because I feel like if you look at the turn of the century in the 1900s, you had a big explosion in automakers you had AMC, Duesenberg. I'm talking like way back then, Buick and uh, Oldsmobile and Pontiac. And yeah. you had consolidation into mm-hmm. General Motors, Ford and Lincoln, not so much. And then Mercury. Mercury. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you had these consolidations and then mm-hmm. you had the Fiat brand and the PSA. And you've seen that, the VW massive, group, yes. these massive consolidations. And then EVs, you've had this new big bang of startups. It's like, bang, you have Lucid and Rivian and Fisker and, and Tesla. And these are like little stars trying to form, and some are burning out. So, But yeah. I still think uh, there's a lot of value. So like if Lucid runs into trouble, incredible buy or for a large player because of their powertrain technology. Oh, my God. Amazing. Yeah. Battery technology? No, not so much. Their powertrain technology. If Rivian starts to falter, they have a tremendous following and they have a lot of features. So I think that could be a good, uh, you know, merge with somebody. But I don't think we're near that in the next like two to three years. So what's your thought on that? And also rope in China with that. So China, there's there was hundreds of EV players. I think Chairman Xi at one point in 2020 said there were 600 and he wants to get it down to 100 at a, some some point in the near future. Sandy gave a speech there, and he tells a story all the time. So what's your thought on this consolidation globally and how it's going to affect these companies? I mean, we've already seen, you know, Geely, one of the largest privately owned um, automot- automakers in China, like they have bought up a lot of these little brands yeah. that have struggled, like Lotus of the world, the, you know, Volvo and Polestar they've owned for many years. But um, 
you know, they're starting to make a splash to, to be able to create a product that has some, you know, emotional tie to it because of the brand heritage and things like that. And, um, you know, a lot of people just don't realize, like, if you look at the Chinese market, how impactful it is looking just from an EV market share perspective. They're like, what, over 30% or at 30% now. And in our market, we're still just like 6%. And so they are so far ahead of us as far as the technology yeah. of, you know, not only implementing them at scale, uh, as far as putting batteries in every kind of form factor, but that's also the kind of other thing is that the United States is a very different market. So um, maybe a, you know, Wuling, Hong Kong, yeah. however you say it, a little tiny uh, EV is not the right fit for our, our country unless you're in a little city. Uh, but China is very densely populated, so it kind of makes sense for there for that market. Or like battery swapping technology, you know, yeah. maybe it'll make sense here. We'll see. But, um, you know, the Chinese market, you can always look to and see as far as technology and innovation and kind of the direction that we're going into because right now they're the leaders of it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I have seen Neo, Xiaoping, BYD, different uh, vehicles. When Sandy and I were in Norway, we're at some show, and uh, I had a chance to like peek under the vehicle and look at under the hood. And I'd say their high voltage architecture was at the level where Tesla was at in two thousand and seventeen or eighteen, but I didn't see a huge amount of innovation that would put them well ahead of like the american oems Normal, but, yeah. but their advantage is batteries yes. i think they have the material raw material sourcing and the battery manufacturing infrastructure to produce low-cost batteries and that's the biggest hurdle to being profitable is getting a low-cost battery that's i think their strength is they're able to manufacture batteries at a much cheaper cheaper rate uh, particularly because they have the government kind of in there helping with a lot of stuff and it's it's the U.S. government's kind of helping now with these um, incentives for battery manufacturing and charging infrastructure, but it's just just now, and I think China's been at it for like about a, a decade. decade. Yeah, it's yeah. been crazy. Yeah, they've really been subsidizing it pretty much ever since I've, you know, been in the business. I've known that they've had subsidies for them to produce, and they only allow certain automakers to have those licenses to produce cars in their country. Um, as far as EVs go. So that's kind of an interesting uh, tactic. But also I see like, you know, I read about every day that there's some new battery technology that they're working on that as far as chemistries go, like what is the implementation of the certain types of chemistries and um, electrolytes that they're trying to push forward. And, you know, that's exciting, but I think that's also probably why we have this bill put into place is to try to prevent that from taking off even further and to try to really localize it here in the United States so that we can say that we are the ones producing and not have to rely on shipping everything overseas in order to clog up our supply chain. So as we saw in the pandemic, yeah. Chips Act, you know, a lot of stuff is starting to get manufactured here to kind of eliminate those headaches, but also hopefully that will stir up some more innovation here in the United States to optimize the efficiency of those batteries. Yeah, and we need that. And Sandy and I visited a couple battery startups in the last uh, few months. We went to SES and Amprius in California. Amprius was really impressive because they had a silicon anode technology where they had little nanotubes coated in porous silicon, and it was like some wild technology, and it allowed them to have 
an anode that that's like one third the size, and it's a huge weight reduction. And they have oh, yeah. five hundred, slightly over five hundred watt hours per kilogram, and they're currently using the wow. batteries in um, an Airbus, a little Airbus plane that circles the Earth endlessly, and so they're using it in a va- like in a near vacuum in very cold temperatures, which is hard to do. So that's a startup with a battery that's actually being produced at that uh, watt hours per kilogram rating, which is kind of impressive, but it's really expensive. I think it's like a thousand dollars per kilowatt hour for for this battery technology. And they even said it's not well suited for automobiles. It's more meant for bespoke applications where weight is like critical. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's, what's so exciting about, I, I love reading about the advancement of automotive technology and that could be from a lot of angles. So like, you know, a lot of, although I am Misco Electric, I do appreciate that kind of stuff. I watch motorsport. I like the advancement of technology and a lot of the technology that we've gotten in passenger EVs that people drive around on a day-to-day basis come from pushing the limits, whether it is from motorsports or from extreme cases like that. Well, electric flight, that's just going to make the industry move quicker because it's coming from so many different tendrils to focus on the problems that we really need to conquer. And weight is one of those, I, yeah. I think, as we talked about before. Yeah, and if you do the math, so if you spend 10 times as much money, the battery could weigh half as much in a Model Y. So what does 500 pounds less in your battery get you in a Model Y? If you design the vehicle around that, it's probably another 100 to 200 pounds of reduction in weight in the vehicle. So you could probably eke out a small a small percentage more range, maybe nine to 12, nine to 15% more range because of that, which is that worth it? Not yet. But I think when you see battery technology in the 450 um, watt hours per kilogram to 600, that's kind of like the watershed moment because it's about double what uh, Tesla's at right now at like 280. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, ultimately, when he says 300 is enough, I think that for most people it is. I say for most people it is. But still, the infrastructure needs to catch up in order to really make a viable option for those that don't drive Teslas. So 300 (laughs) miles of range. I think for most people that'll be fine. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure automakers will then start to incorporate those you know, LFP type batteries yeah. more and more to get those standard range packs for people that want to get a lower introductory price for with, with their a, needs. With LFP, that's a hit in volumetric and gravimetric energy density. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I transitioned from watt hours per kilogram in batteries, transitioned to miles of range. Just want to be clear there yes. for anyone <laughs> listening. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So, I think we covered a lot of good topics today. I'm going to look at producer Eric. Where are we at, man? <laughs> we are approaching an hour. And as we're wrapping up, um, I want to move to a more funner topic. Yeah. So Lacey has been on the channel. <clears throat> sorry. On the channel multiple times. You hung out with us in Vegas. Do you have a good Sandy story? Oh, my gosh. Um, yes, I do have some good Sandy stories. I have plenty um, it's always a good time when we get to meet up with you guys at events. Uh, when we were at the fully charged live show last year, it was really fun. Cause they had like a dinner for everyone to yeah. come to, you know, where I'm probably yeah. going with this. This is the craziest. I did not expect this at all, but all of a sudden I look around and then Sandy has a shirt off. It's like, what is going on? What is Sandy? Put your shirt back on. 
Some guy yeah. asked him about his shirt, and he was like, oh, yeah, you want this? And literally took it off his back to give it to him. It was Dr. Know-it-all, Mr. Gibbs. What? You know Dr. Know-it-all? Yes, yeah, so yeah. John Gibbs, YouTube. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, he had, uh, Sandy was wearing an Aptera shirt. It was an Aptera yes. shirt. And John was sitting here. Sandy was sitting right across from me. He's like, man, I really want that shirt. And he's like, all right. And he, he had a zip. He unzipped it and took it off. And I took multiple photos of Sandy with his shirt off. And I posted it to Twitter. And to this day, Sandy's wife is still not happy. Sue. I would imagine. She is yes. not happy. She 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 knows how to wrangle him in. A unfortunately, Sandy. she wasn't there to be able to wrangle him in for that. But it was, yeah. uh, I oh, think my I, gosh. I think I actually posted uh I don't know if I can swear on this. Can I swear on this? Bleep. Sure. I'll do the bleep think, for you. <laughs> I think I said bleep's getting real here. Like, like you know, bleep's getting real. Because Sandy and his shirt was off. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was uh, probably uh, burned into my brain, unfortunately. He has, um, yeah, he had, he had some liquid <laughs> courage there. And someone else yes. was there uh, right across from it was uh, Jessica Kirsch. Yes. <laughs> who, who does Kirsch Cam. Uh, she follows SpaceX. She was there. And um, yeah, both of us got that front front row view of that. <laughs> like Sandy, what the heck? <laughs> oh, weren't you you there too? Yeah, it was right next to her. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Actually, I think it was maybe even you in between the two of us or something. Yeah. I can't remember. There's someone right there, her, and then me. <laughs> it was yeah. I think I was next to Kirsch. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was out of the blue. I mean, there are a lot of good Stan- Sandy stories to pull from, though. He's a very good storyteller. Yeah, he told a story on our last sit-down episode we had to actually cut out of the edit. We couldn't release it. It was too graphic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would say probably Sandy's very, very close to getting canceled at some time. So you guys are pretty good at avoiding that. But Well, this wasn't cancelable uh, material. Let's just say we both ate the same breakfast and both got on the same plane back to Germany, back from Germany, and uh, a lot of hilarity ensued. It was kind of funny. That's all I say because I don't want to have this cut out again. Uh, but no, it was great. great. Yeah, he's great. Um, I do want to mention, you know, one of my favorite videos that I had done um, with Sandy was uh, I got all my e-bikes together out oh, in the yeah. park nearby, and because I only live like down the road from you guys, so that's why it's so easy for me to stop by all the time or do videos and whatnot because I'm so close. But we went to a nearby park and I brought all of my e-bikes out because I do e-bike reviews as well. And uh, he was able to sample all the different types that I had. And my favorite, one of my favorites was him on the Mac wheel, which was this little tiny, like foldable bike that was so like fragile looking. He looked like he was in like a circus riding around on it. It was hilarious. The, like the bear on the little cycle. Yes. That's yeah. exactly what he looked like. And he's like, and I'm like, don't hurt yourself, please. He didn't get hurt. Don't worry. <laughs> but yeah, um, to that point, uh, I am doing group rides across the whole country this year. So if anyone's interested in coming and joining me um, for the next six months, once one event per month, I'm going around the country for people to join me t- in e-bikes around. You're going to actually take the bike all the way across the country or you're going to pack them in your car pack them in yeah so we'll pack them in so our first one's coming up pretty soon uh in arizona but we also go to uh, orange county california uh denver colorado uh new york upstate probably um sarasota florida and uh utah kind of near st george so uh, i think it's important for people 
to not only transition to electric vehicles, but I think a lot of people would realize that their daily commute could also be fulfilled in the form of an e-bike or a scooter or a skateboard or whatever. So yeah, if you want to learn more about that, we're having these um, group rides and you can come talk to me about what might fit your lifestyle. And if you have one, bring a bike and join us, go for a ride. Yeah. I'm almost at the point where I'm considering running to work every day. I live 13 miles from work. But I've been running a lot every day, so it's like, I should just run to work because we have a shower here. Yeah. But e-bike would be really easy. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I mean, that's the kind of the nice thing about the e-bikes is you can kind of decide when you really want to put the work in with the pedal assist. Or yeah. if you get one with a throttle, then you yeah. can have it like a moped. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And how's your growth been for your channels? You, you do Instagram, probably Twitter. Yep. Uh, do you do Facebook and YouTube? So what? Yeah. Um, so we have pretty good growth. I mean, we're only since I started the brand in during the pandemic, it was really like the end of 2020 is when we kicked off. Um, and kind of what spurred it all was actually there was legislation coming through to direct, uh, ban direct sales in the state of Michigan yeah. once again. And, uh, I went to the Capitol and spoke on behalf of just citizens and an EV owner and, people, a person that understands the business because I've worked for dealers, I've worked for OEMs, I've worked with all these different um, types of people in the industry and kicked it off um, by basically speaking like people should have the option to buy whatever they want to buy and you shouldn't block them from buying something that is a direct sales model versus going into a dealership. I think they should be able to have the option and they can choose. The market should be able to allow people to freely do what they want it's america it's america (laughs) yeah so um yeah that kind of kicked it off but i would say growth wise you know it's it's i still do my regular job so i probably could transition to make it more full-time and it is becoming you know more and more dedicated time to that um but i'd say like you know right now we just surpassed like ten thousand on youtube so we're still pretty small but um, I think the impact of the people following us is, uh, important because since I'm in the industry, uh, you know, my LinkedIn following is pretty big. My Instagram is okay. My Twitter is decent size, but the people that are following me are very impactful. Like, you know, I mean, similar to you, like you get the CEOs of companies yeah. like Jim Farley or Mary Barra that follow you, which is really cool to see, but that also oh, just Mar- shows Mary follows you. Yeah. Mary doesn't follow anything we do. She has declined multiple offers yeah, to come really? on Emerald Live for some reason. But uh, we have we have uh, like Farley, yeah. uh, Ted Canis, yep. you know Ford Pro, all the chief engineers from Ford. Um, Jeff Bezos follows all of our channels. That's a big deal. That's impressive, including yeah. Corey, including me. Yeah. Hey, hey Jeff, what's up? <laughs> and um, then yeah, like sometimes I'll go in there and like there's these other influencers out there like Sawyer yeah. Merritt. He follows me on Twitter. Right. Sam Chorus from Arc Investment follows me. Like it's like, yeah. Whoa, holy cow. Yeah. And uh, you probably get the same thing. So yeah, even though I'm like pretty small, I think you know I probably provide some value where they think whatever perspective I'm sharing is worth following. So yeah, yeah I think that's kind of the cool thing is that it's even though it might be a smaller following, it's the people that I respect in the business or that I find interesting that are also joining the journey. So to our Monroe Live fans, if you're out there listening, please follow Miss Go Electric on everything. Instagram, Twitter, (laughs) YouTube. And uh, yeah, 
you get a lot of value from that. I appreciate that. Yeah, we're going to be making a lot of like EV buyers guides this year, uh, whether that's not only fundamental knowledge, because a lot of the stuff that I create is behind the scenes. It's B2B and not necessarily out in the public. So yeah. we'll be now that we got our footing in and all the equipment that we wanted to buy is is good to go. We'll be making a lot of that kind of content. Also, for people that want to get in get an e bike but don't know even where to start, we're producing those and a lot of heads to heads this year. But we'll be out at a lot of events. So, on my website, miscoelectric.com, you can find I have a tab on there to show where exactly where we're going to be this year. Awesome for some meatsies. Meatsies. <laughs> Sorry, inside joke. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm getting the wrap-up signal from Eric over there, so I figured I'd throw him under the bus. Um, <laughs> so, Misco Electric, I really appreciate you coming on the Thanks Monroe Live podcast. Um, hopefully, hopefully our listeners out there got some value from this. And once again, uh, follow her. 